From Holland to Hampton, from Brisbane to Brussels, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experiences. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Tales of the Tribunal. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, and I am so excited to be back with you for another episode, a very special episode, and it's special in more ways than one. Not only do we have a very special guest, but it is our Juneteenth episode. Now, maybe you've heard of Juneteenth, but you didn't know exactly what it is. So let me break it down for you. The year was 1865 and the U.S. had just ended a bloody and long civil war, and the nation was rebuilding itself. And half the population, the black half, was embracing this newly found and hard-fought freedom. That was, unless you were an enslaved person in Galveston, Texas. You see, although the war had ended a year earlier, word had not reached every corner of the country. It finally did so on June 19, 1865, on orders of General Gordon Granger. The final and non-imprisoned enslaved person was finally freed, thus ending the institution of slavery in the United States, at least without being a punishment for prison. Many black Americans to this day celebrate this as an Independence Day of sorts and will hold celebrations and gatherings to commemorate black history, to focus on initiatives for black progress, and to serve their communities. Juneteenth has recently gained more mainstream notoriety, but it has long been an honored tradition in the black community. And its adoption by greater US culture is a win for diversity and inclusion. And speaking of diversity and inclusion, that is a great segue to today's guest, who is the very definition of both being a champion for diversity, equity, and inclusion, but also being a dynamic and charismatic corporate leader. Well, and I should say, it is not often that one gets a chance to interview their boss. Even less common when your boss is the chief legal officer of a huge multinational with operations all around the globe. That's just what we have queued up for today's show as Regina Jones, chief legal officer for Baker Hughes, has stopped by for a chat. Now, it was one of my first recorded episodes of this season, and we had the chance to do it live. Regina is such a fascinating individual with a professional background across multiple disciplines, a dynamic leadership style, and truly a pleasure to work with. And listen, I'm not just saying that because she's my boss and the captain of this legal ship here at Baker Hughes, okay? Regina and I really got into the tenets of legal operation and how lawyers, both internal and external, can best partner with their commercial colleagues. In any case, I think you're really going to enjoy this week's episode, so take out your legal pads and enjoy my conversation with Regina Jones. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from the wide around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. With me today, we have a very special guest. 
my boss. In fact, the one that decides what kind of strategy we have here at Baker Hughes. Not something we talk too much specifically about on the show, but something we will be continuing to not address. In fact, we'll be talking more about Regina, her background, and all the things that uh, perhaps the guests out there in podcast land would like to know. So, Miss Regina Jones, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. I'm honored to be here, and it's a pleasure to work with you every single day. <laughs> Thanks. Great. So, um, let me step back for just a moment before we get into the topics for today. Um, how about this? Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? So, hello, everyone. I'm Regina Jones. I am the chief legal officer of Baker Hughes. I've been in my role now for about two years. It'll be two years and three weeks. And I am from Memphis, Tennessee, All right. where I was born, currently living in Houston, Texas. I've worked in the energy industry my entire career, started off in information technology. I was a programmer, developer, um, IT support desktop analyst, and then I went to law school at night, have always been in the energy industry, mostly in Houston, but I have lived abroad, worked, lived in Paris, France for five years, as well as Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia for two. I've been at Baker Hughes now for two years, as I mentioned, and it's a great opportunity to work with amazing lawyers from all over the world. Fantastic. That was a very complete answer. That was that was great. Um, so, well, let's let's take one of those things that you said. You have a background in programming. How did a programmer find himself in law school and eventually practicing law and leading a huge a couple of huge companies? Okay, so that's a funny story. I'll give you an honest answer. <laughs> First of all, I always wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. Um, but I went to undergrad in uh, at Sam Houston State University, which is in Huntsville, Texas, right outside of Houston. And Sam Houston is known for their criminal justice program. So when I started, my major was CJ, which is what we called it. And my dad at that time told me not to major in criminal justice because I wouldn't make any money and I'd end up being a probation officer and <laughs> that I needed to get a real job where I would be able to have a, a salary where I could support myself. So he might have had self-interested motives, but I ended up listening to my dad, probably shocking, but I switched my major to business with a minor in computer science. So when I graduated, I was also in Inroads, which is a program designed for minority students, okay. college students, and you work every summer in a uh, particular company, which is your sponsoring company, in the hopes that you'll graduate uh, after having worked four internships and then become a full-time employee there. So my background was now computer science is where I did my summer internships with the company in Houston, El Paso Energy. And when I graduated, they offered me a full-time job in IT. Okay, so that's the programming element. And then from there, what was, well, where'd you go to law school? So I went to law school at South Texas College of Law, okay. which is also in Houston. It's a private law school. And I went to law school at night while I was working in IT in the daytime. Oh, law school at night? Yeah, Okay. I did my whole law school career part-time at night. So I would go to school to, uh, excuse me, I would work in the daytime and then I'd have class from six to 10 every single night, including on Saturdays. So I, Saturday. Sheesh. <laughs> okay. So law school on easy mode then, you know, doing it, uh, working and then doing law school at the same time. Wow. Okay. And then, so your first 
what were what were your, some of your early career uh, legal choices like? Were they was it always in house? Did you do some firm work or what was that like? So I'm a very non-traditional lawyer, if mm. you will. Um, I started off like I mentioned in IT, and I was in IT when IT wasn't even a real thing. <laughs> meaning we didn't have laptops. We barely had desktop computers at every computer, and we didn't have email, if you will. So I helped to set up our network architecture at El Paso when I was working there, as well as as a developer, as well as I basically served in every single IT role. They had a program when I was working to where they would pay for students or for employees to go to school at night. And, or any time it would be a um, program sponsored by the company. And I took advantage of the tuition reimbursement program and went to law school. Well, so it sounds, I mean, the way you tell it, you tell it so, so smoothly, it sounds like it was all part of a greater plan. <laughs> uh, actually, it just kind of came together. I was basically broke and trying to make money. Mm. Um, I And I loved, though, technology. I began to just really thrive on IT and looking at new technology as, as it was introduced. And when I graduated from undergrad and then ultimately law school, what I found was that I wanted to, I had always wanted to be a criminal prosecutor. Okay. Remember I was majoring in CJ before. Sure. So I started interviewing for prosecutor jobs and very quickly I realized that my salary in my IT job mm -hmm was multiples of what I would get working as a prosecutor. Sure. So I then abandoned my prosecutor focus and focused on IT. So I moved into a role at that time, Shell recruited me and I moved to Shell and uh, worked in a role where I was working on computer contracts, I'll say for in IT support. So I was basically working in procurement okay. for technology type support that they needed, software, consultants, network, etc. And from there, started my career in corporate doing things that were adjacent to the legal industry. And then I was hired with another company, Dynagy, where I began to work in more legal roles. So I've never worked at a law firm. I've worked with a law firm and I always joke to say that I've been trained by some of the smartest lawyers in the world because they were all partners yeah. that would work with me as an internal client. So for them, no question was a stupid question. They trained me on anything because I was a client and they were some of the smartest people in the room on legal topics. So I learned over a very long career, uh, a lot of different areas of the law. No, it's not, it sounds like it. And well, one of the things that you point out there is that difference between being an in-house lawyer versus being a, a private lawyer or private practice lawyer. So. To you, Regina, what are some of the, the biggest differences in private practice and in-house work? So that's a great question as well, because I actually took a job with a law firm when I was working in IT mm. as a technology person while I was in law school. So I mentioned I had started with Shell, and then I got an offer from a top law firm to work in their uh, technology group. And to be quite frank, I hated it. No. I hated everything about the environment. I felt like it was a sweatshop and I felt like it was a classist environment where it was the lawyers and then there's everyone else. So honestly, I didn't feel value as a member of the team, even though I knew I did valuable work. Hmm. I ended up only being in that role less than six months. 
and move back into the corporate arena at that point. So my perception of law firms was always one where it was fairly hierarchical, meaning there's partners and there's everybody else. Also, I felt like from a career perspective, I had had the opportunity working in corporate environments to understand and participate actively in driving strategic efforts forward. Whereas in the law firm environment, it was more tactical, focused on project by project, issue by issue. And I just really felt like I thrived in a broader environment where I was made to feel like a critical element of the team where I was providing business advice. I always say I think lawyers' primary role is to provide legal solutions to business problems. And that was where my interests lie. And well, I would imagine this is sort of a follow-up that would probably be when you consider what makes a great in-house counsel, maybe some of the key ingredients, right? Those sort of idea of of solving the business issues. I mean, the law matters and of course we'll frame that discussion, but um, it's ultimately about how do you help the business? Absolutely. And that's why I enjoy working with you as well, Chris, because you show up with the perspective that's broader than just the legal expertise that you have. You're thinking about now, what is the issue that we're trying to address? What is the strategy that we're trying to drive? What are the real valuable points of the law that need to be brought to the table here? So, you know, it's not business over the law. Law over business is making sure we're balanced in our perspective and we're provided solid, le- providing solid legal advice, but it's in the context of now the business that we're trying to run. So I think thinking strategically about legal issues and, on, and, and, and being able to explain them in a way that your business counterparts can understand is one of the most fundable at, fundamental attributes that we as lawyers in the corporate space need to have. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, well, that sense and that sort of desire communication style certainly comes from the top. Um, and, and I think that it's critical if we if our business clients don't understand what we're telling them or what we're advising them and why, then the advice isn't really worth anything. <laughs> I agree. And they may not take it because they actually didn't artic- understand what you were trying to communicate. That, that's fair. Now, within the world uh, of corporate law and the different practice areas that, you know, I'm sure you see and that we, we know exist. Do you have any favorites? You know, is M&A, IP, litigation? <laughs> uh, so um, interestingly, I think contracts mm, is my okay. favorite. And why do I say that? Because any company that you're in, every single dollar that they make should flow through a contract that someone in the legal department has had a play to role in writing. And for me, that validates now the importance of the work that we do. Obviously, issues will flow in on the back end because now there's a legal issue that came out of that contract. But at the end of the day, the fabric of a company's existence lies within its contracting framework. So contracts to me is one of the most uh, one of the areas of the law that are clo- that's closest to the business. And then I think my second would have to be compliance as well, because the interpretation of now how your actions that you take every single day translate into integrity and compliance is critical as well. And so that's where helping make good, good business decision comes into play. It's doing it with integrity. It's doing it in the spirit of the contracting framework that you have as a company. And it's taking into account, taking into consideration the values that you bring. Sure. No, I, th- I think that that's 
Well said. I mean, obviously, the answer I was looking for was arbitration and litigation, but, you know, well. <laughs> and then there's that. Yeah. In reality, though, that's what I'm trying to avoid, Chris. Yeah, no, no, I, I get it. I get it. Um, uh, sh- shifting topics just a little bit. Um, you know, one thing that we talked about here on the show, and I think those that follow the demographic numbers among the American legal population, is that when I was in law school, the, the population among American lawyers that were black was around 6%. It jumped up to about 8% for a couple of years, but now it's back down to 6% and actually trending the opposite way. Um, the question I would have maybe from your vantage point or in your experience, Regina, would be what, if anything, do you think can be done in the corporate environment to increase those numbers or to reverse that trend? Um, I think we have to lean in quite frankly, to ensuring that there's diversity in recruiting. In order to change the complexion of our profession, it requires um, intentional actions. And the the law students are there. We have an extremely diverse, if you really look at the population of law students, the diversity exists in in the pool. So it comes down to holding law firms accountable. If you're in a position like mine, uh, which is a corporate position, i.e. we're the client and we can set expectations and we have a choice when it comes to law firms that we work with. So leaning in at my level to now setting expectations for the firm, I think is fundamental. But it's not just expectations on I want you to show up with associates that look like me. It's expectations that they understand the value of diversity in their talent pool and in their resource base. Because if I want good advice, I want to make sure that's coming from the best people that are equipped to provide it. So if I look across the table and I see a set of lawyers that don't represent the population, that means they're only giving me one perspective. So if I really am looking for the best legal guidance and perspective, I need to work with a firm that can bring that at every single level. That's at the partner level. It's at the relationship partner level. So for me, if a firm shows up and they just have a couple of diverse associates sprinkled in, that means now the leadership in the firm still isn't being representative of the population. So their ability to now in their partner class have diversity at the managing partner level have diversity and also at the client level where I can see that diversity within all levels, partner, junior associate, associate, as well as with their pro bono work that they do. So there's lots of opportunities for law firms to show up differently in that space, but we are only going to make a change if it happens across the organization. And that's at the corporate level, as well as within the firm environment, as well as at the law schools, providing students of diverse backgrounds opportunities to clerk and engage at very senior levels of the firm as well. Sure, and I guess the, the follow-up that I would have there is that makes sense in, in interfacing with the the law firms, you know, who are the vendors in this context. But do you see anything that we, well, I guess we, the, the general corporate legal community, can do to to better engage with the law students while they're in law school to make sure that because I think some students don't even recognize or realize that they could be a, a fine corporate lawyer. Um, there's sometimes that suggestion that you have to either know somebody or you have to have a very specific profile. And I think that that's doing the corporate community a disservice. Yeah, I agree. And I think, one, you've got to have the lawyers in corporate in the first place. But then secondly, they need to be accountable for reaching back 
across into the university environment as well as even in high school convincing people to actually look at being a lawyer as a career when i graduated from law school you know i talked about how i worked in technology and i had a great salary in technology and um but at the end of the day no law firms were reaching out to me i knew there was an artificial barrier of i needed to be in the top probably five percent quite mm -hmm. frankly and i needed to be special and so you know my husband and i talk about just and there are certain people where they're just special because of the skill set that they bring and if i just look at katanji brown jackson in her case now as the first african-american female nominee to the supreme court she's special what do i mean when you look at her credentials she checks every single box. She will probably be one of the most, if not the most qualified justices to sit on the Supreme Court ever. Yep. I shouldn't have to be Katanji Brown Jackson to have an opportunity. All right. So my job as a senior lawyer is to reach into areas where I may be able to have an impact and bring others with me. So I have a, a quote that I refer to often, which is noblesse oblige, which is nobility obligates. And so if I'm in a noble role, I have a job, I have an obligation to now find others, give them opportunities, cultivate them while they're there and ensure they're equally successful because that what was done. That's what was done for me. Sure. No. And I, I think that's well said and well framed. Um, in a similar vein, but, but sort of moving from that point just a bit, um, I can imagine that over the course of any given year, uh, you have had the opportunity to review a bunch of legal candidates for different positions across the company. Um, in your mind, or you know, not asking you to speak on any specific candidate, but just in general, what are the things that, that stand out or strike you about a successful candidate or someone that you would want to have on your team? Interesting. So I won't start with being a smart lawyer because I would say being smart in the profession is just the price of admission. I look at energy. I look at ability to engage and communicate with others. I look at whether or not the individual appears to be thoughtful and interested in not just the job, but the company, the career, what value they can bring to the table. And so when it's, it really is the soft element of working and leadership that I think is the most fundamental. So are they a smart lawyer? That should be evident from their resume. Am I going to want them to be on my legal team is based on now how they show up and whether or not they, they, they have the energy, the um, engagement level and are thoughtful and how they engage with others and whether or not there's someone that others on the team would want to work with on any given day. Well, that's great. For those of you out there listening, wanting to apply to Baker Hughes, those are the things you should make sure <laughs> to show with your application <laughs> too. Hint, hint. Um, uh, Regina, you've been at the helm now um, for just over two years here at Baker Hughes. Um, what are some of the things that you're most proud of? Um, surviving. <laughs> uh, it's been a tough two years. Um, I, when I started, COVID started. So yeah. the moment I started, everything was locked down. There wasn't an opportunity to engage with people at all. I would show up and it would literally just be me and my boss at the office. And that was hard. 
because you don't have the benefit to utilize some of the skills that we as lawyers are best known for. It's our, the gift of gab. It's talking with people. It's engaging with them on a personal level. And if you think about it, in our roles, we have to operate on trust where our leadership trusts us because we give good advice. It is very difficult to build trust on a Zoom call yep. because people only know just a sliver of what you're like. And in order for them to trust you with their concerns or come to you with the question and want now your advice, particularly when you're not always giving out the answer that people want to hear, a lot of that is fundamentally based on trust. So having to come in and be effective in an environment where you didn't have some of the fundamentals in place was a real challenge, as well as a key part of my role is engaging with the board of directors. And that's another group of constituents where you need to build their trust. You also need to demonstrate credibility and leadership in a differentiated way. And quite frankly, that is hard to do as well when you're doing it interacting on a screen. So some of the things that really we take for granted when we start a new job were things that I didn't have the benefit of being able to just leverage in my current role at Baker Hughes. Beyond that, just the external environment, there's just been a lot going on. And as we continue to focus on now how we can be a positive player in the energy transition, how we can continue to transform our portfolio as an energy technology company is an equal challenge because we're making a transformation internally, uh, we're changing externally, and we're engaging in a differentiated way with our stakeholders around the world. So all of those things taken together, I think, create a great opportunity for me to come in and be able to add value in a differentiated way. But it's also been in an environment that I could have never framed when I started in the role. Sure. And, and going along those lines, before we get into our, our speed round, um, what do you see as some of the challenges or notes um, facing or uh, coming up in the legal industry over the next five to 10 years? Um, I think the role of a lawyer is fundamentally changing. And one of the great mistakes that I think we can make is to assume that everything's going to be the same. Our potential value to the organization has exponentially changed since the last two years. We're now being asked to provide advice and guidance and perspective on laws that don't completely exist. When you think about climate change and when you think about COVID and a pandemic and leading through that, when you think about everything that's going on right now with the issues with Russia and Ukraine and calling it an issue is an understatement, but recognizing that we're having to advise on things that are real they're um, things that no one ever anticipated in their lifetime, quite frankly, or at least I didn't. And they're things that acutely impact the business and the business strategy and different stakeholders have different perspectives on it. So whether it's diversity, equity and inclusion, and to just speak on that topic for a moment, I think the murder of George George Floyd was game changing when it comes to now the accountability and making it glaringly apparent that individuals as well as corporate America have and being a part of the change that needs to happen. 
you take all of that together and then combine it with the fact too that we have an economic we have economic inflationary logistics challenges that are also we've not seen before so lawyers what their job now is to really advise on business issues in a moment of crisis multiple crises happening in parallel so if we're not able to adapt our styles to where now we're being that conciliatory to leadership and to business leaders and helping to give them perspective and guidance based on the insight that we can provide we're not doing our jobs our job is to not sit in the office and tell someone what the law says our job is to be right there side by side shoulder to shoulder giving a perspective now and giving guidance as to what right looks like in this moment and how to lead and make good decisions that happen to do with the law as it continues to develop. Absolutely. Um, I think that that's well said. And I think that's a good place to, to stop this portion of the interview. Um, before we let you go, Regina, we do want to do uh, some of our favorite questions to wrap up with on our guest. Um, what are you reading right now? What's on your bookshelf? So interestingly, I just downloaded a book. It was an audio book that uh, one of our board members is the author of. And oh. so I wanted to read it. His name is Greg Brenneman. Okay. And the book is called Right Away and All at Once. So I just started it. So I can't give you any insight into it. I just finished another book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And another one called Expect to Win. Hmm. And that's by Carla A. Harris. And I mentioned those three just because I love, love, loved Expect to Win. And I am a big proponent of the fact that what got you here won't get you there. Absolutely. No, that's true. Things are ever changing and ever evolving. Um, how about music? What kind of music do you like? Or who's some of your, some of your favorite artists? Okay, so I like all music. Okay. And um, I don't have an artist appropriate answer, but one of my favorite artists is Meek Mill. Okay, Meek Mill. Mm -hmm. Very well. Okay. <laughs> No, as a championships is a great album. That's a good gym album. Yeah, yeah, that'll get you going. Yep, there's uh, a, there's a lot of Meek Mill, but we don't have that much time. Yeah, exactly. I was gonna say, and, and over the pandemic, there's been a lot of good albums coming out too. Mm -hmm. So that, that's that's fair enough. Um, one of the final questions I have is, who have been some of your guiding influences or or forces or, or mentors? There's so many. Sure. Um, that actually should not be a hard question, but it is because I have so many mentors. If I had to pick. A famous person the first person that comes to mind is Rosa Parks oh wow yeah and um, just because she was a leader that stood up for herself not realizing that it was going to have the impact that it was but also recognizing that she in her in her space in her moment had the ability to impact and influence a nation sure no that that's well said and well founded and I can appreciate that um over the number of different things that you've done in your career that have probably been a, a number of, of guiding forces and mentors and, and the like. Um, just two final questions um, before we get out of here today. Um, let's say it's 5 p.m. on a Friday. Somehow you don't have any work, you don't have anything to do, so we're talking in the realm of fantasy to some extent. Um, how do you, What does your ideal weekend look like? How do you spend your free time? Um, sitting on my patio with a glass of wine and my husband. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Now, that sounds like a good time. Um, and finally, do you have any shout outs, any tips of the cap that you want to give 
to, to the folks at home, the folks who might be listening. So I um, would love to give a shout out to my husband, Kevin Jones. He's my best friend. We've been married for 25 years. And to my sons, Kevin and Dylan, they're both Eagle Scouts, and they're amazing. And um, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't show them a little love on your podcast. And they can say, hey, mom was on a podcast. Exactly. And then, not uh, last but certainly not least, all the amazing lawyers at Baker Hughes. Every day, they not only make me proud, but they also make me look good. So thanks for all the work that you do, and you as well, Chris. Oh, well, thank you for that, Regina. Normally, we try and tag all the folks um, that shout-outs are mentioned, but it might be difficult to tag the entire legal department. <laughs> I agree. Um, well, Regina, we appreciate you coming by the Digital Studio. Thank you so much for coming by. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it, and it was an absolute honor for me. I am Regina Jones, and there is no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thanks so much, Regina, and we'll see y'all next time. So that was my conversation with Regina. Hopefully you enjoyed it. It went by in a flash and we'd love to have Regina on the show again sometime. At least for me, I appreciated her comments on establishing process and consistency and learning how to engage with your clients. In particular, her perspective on the ever evolving nature of diversity, equity and inclusion was a breath of fresh air and something that I think all of us can remind and take forward with into our organizations and our different roles. As a note to Regina before we wrap up, listen, I really appreciate you making the time to sit down for this interview and being so candid and generous with your time. Finally, a big shout out to all of my colleagues at Baker Hughes, generally, but especially in legal. We couldn't do our jobs without you, and thanks for always being supportive. You may have seen that Tales of the Tribunal hosted a poll a couple of months ago taking a look at the metrics for participants in the VisMoot. We were looking at things like whether teams had coaches, the amount of hours invested at each stage of the competition, and how far each team went in the competition. Our sample size was about 15% of VisMoot teams and included teams that advanced deep into the elimination rounds. We will be releasing that data next week, so tag your VisMoot friends, coaches, participants, and anyone else you think might be interested in seeing the data. I think you'll find it interesting. Before you turn off the podcast for this week, please take a moment to share the show with a friend or colleague. And if you haven't already, please, please, please leave a review on your podcasting platform of choice. I know it can seem like a small thing, but it really does make a difference for us in finding new listeners and helping others discover the show. Episode production was performed by MoBeta Solutions. Episode music was provided by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. That's it for this week. And until next time, you've been listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Practice meets personality. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved. <music>